Welcome to Ayurvedic Healing and Beyond podcast. My name is Vignesh Devaraj, an Ayurvedic doctor and holistic health coach. Each week we share wisdom or interview an inspiring personality to guide you become your healthiest self. Remember, your health is your greatest asset. In this episode, I am interviewing an epigenetic coach, Rajkumari Niyogi from Silicon Valley, and we discuss the possibilities of epigenetics and how we can use the science to transform our lives. A very inspiring and enlightening conversation that you would enjoy. Now we go over to Rajkumari Niyogi. Thank you so much, Rajkumari Niyogi, for being on my podcast. I'm so looking forward for this insightful interview with you. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much, Vignesh, for inviting me. And uh, Rajkumari, we, uh, I'm so excited when it comes to the topic of epigenetics because it talks about the possibility of humanity to break their patterns and to get into their new beautiful things that they can reach their potential. So what got you into epigenetics and being a coach and being in Silicon Valley, going through, I mean, all the corporate jobs that you're going through, what got you into this coaching and epigenetics? I'm really curious about the story that got you into this transformation. No, it's such a great question. So in 2006, um, <laughs> my second my second company uh, epically failed <laughs> in all the ways you can possibly imagine. I got audited by the IRS. <laughs> my one client became a competitor and stole my source. It was quite a journey. Um, and, I, and I completely gave up uh, trying to be a, a founder. That was very devastating to me. And I realized very quickly that something was not right. I mean, I did not, I, I spent one year trying to get $7,000 from Puma, the, the tennis shoe or, or the whatever company that is. And I was completely unsuccessful. And I really wanted to understand why, for what, for, I, I spent so many years, three years trying to develop this, this, this product, this, this idea, this, this software. And everyone I talked to thought it was a great idea and thought it was amazing. In fact, Coca-Cola actually did the idea 30 days after I officially shut down my company. So it really got me thinking, like, how is it that people have really good ideas or really are on the right path and so epically unsuccessful? What, what drives that? That's a nice you know, and, and how are others so successful and really put almost zero effort? Like all of these questions started coming up for me. Mm -hmm. And I had simultaneously decided to, right after this epic fail of my, my second startup, um, really do some, some inner reflection mm -hmm. and to really look at, hey, I wonder if it might be me. <laughs> Could I be part of this equation, actually? Mm -hmm. And in this process of self-reflection and curiosity, I stumbled across some of some, some research by Rachel Yehuda and Moshe Seif, who are two epigenetic, well, Moshe Seif's an epigeneticist, and Rachel Yehuda had done some really phenomenal research in the field of epigenetics. Um, her research actually showed in 2016 that um, <clears throat> children of Holocaust survivors actually carried the gene that reflected the trauma and therefore showed the symptoms of trauma that their past ancestors who survived the concentration camps actually endured. I mean, how incredibly heartbreaking, mm -hmm. right? And then Moshe Saif did another study that was quite fascinating. Uh, he studied uh, women who were pregnant during the major horrific ice storm in Montreal in 1998, I believe. Mm -hmm. And he was able to evaluate based on these environmental stressors, how the child would actually arrive in the world. Mm -hmm. um, if the mothers had incredibly comfortable environmental ways of being during this incredibly difficult ice storm versus those that were struggling with ele electricity or food, etc., cetera, um, how was the child um, at, at, during uh, the, the, the birth um, and therefore during the growth stages of development. Mm -hmm. And it's just mind-blowing, right? So the, the, the more the environment stresses us, um, the more we are actually accommodating that stress, uh, stress 
from a cellular level. And so now the research, I mean, this is only four years ago from, from Rachel Yehuda's uh, research. Now it's even more heartbreaking. <laughs> um, <clears throat> excuse me. Now the research shows that we carry the traits and tragedies and traumas transgenerationally between 200 and 500 years in our cellular biology. 200 to 500 years we hold on to our trauma. Is that what you said? Yeah, depending upon which article you read, mm. um, there are different evaluations. Uh, Rachel Yehuda says it's 210. Dr. Joy DeGruy says it's 300. And Resma Menachem says it's 490. So I think that gives the answer why some people feel there is something is still not working or what is going on. Why do I feel like this for no reason? I think that yeah. this could, we could relate to that. So, so this actually turned my direction, as you can imagine, about incredible and immense curiosity, looking at, okay, great. So now I had this epic failure as a startup company. Um, did, I, did, did that show up in a pattern with my family? Like, let's go look at that. And of course, um, you know, shockingly so, yes, <laughs> it did. And, you know, we look at my father, we look at my grandfather, and we look at my great-grandfather. Um, and it, it's a beautiful, amazingly accurate flow. So my great-grandfather um, lost the land in, in, in Bangladesh and mm -hmm. during the partition time and, and was relocated to India. So, so he lost all of his wealth. Um, my grandfather, something very similar, uh, the, the Indian government uh, took his home in, in Bangalore uh, for other reasons, which um, I don't need to get into. <laughs> and, you know, he, he lost all of his wealth. Um, and, and part of that was actually because they came to Canada to take care of me during, we talked about this in the past, my, my, my surgeries as a child. Mm -hmm. My father, you know, lost uh, 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 real estate uh, during a time when people were buying anything for any cost. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this is the, this is the, right, in honor of, this is the patterning that it, so, oh, so all of you lost really important things? Awesome, I'm gonna do the same. Mm. But not consciously, of course, but this becomes quite fascinating. How is it that I'm putting hours and hours and hours and hours into building something and then lose it? Of course, it could be circumstance, but we also have to look at how our transgenerational traits and traumas and tragedies are actually playing a role. It might not be the entire story, mm -hmm. but certainly, gosh, it's a thread of it. That's that's why we have the saying: "It's in his blood, or it's in her blood." You know? Exactly. That's... What we're saying is that memory is there in the blood, so that can show up in many different activities and how we attract the events in our lives. Yes, and just to your comment, I'm sure you know this, given what you do. There is just research this year talking about how memories are held in the spinal cord. Yeah. What? <laughs> I mean, see, the body keeps the memory. I mean, it's like the hard disk where we keep this uh, memory of everything that go, all the emotions, it just holds on to it. And, and it's just logic to understand that that can be inherited to the next generation because the next generation is also coming through the same energy so it's possible with that so 200 300 years i think it's it's only like three generations not three like six generations so mm -hmm. it's not a and when we, when it comes to epigenetics and the the whole idea is in spite of whatever the trauma or the memory that you're holding on to there is a possibility that we can come out of it we can break that pattern is, isn't that what we do with this Oh, of course. I mean, I think that there's... That, that thought is so liberating, you know. It's so liberating. Wow. I think it sounds like the Karl Marx telling there's nothing to lose except the change. So there's nothing to lose except your bad patterns. That, that sounds so liberating. So this is a really, really great point, actually, Vignesh, because it is and it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so, so this now we're, we're entering the complexity of this concept of belonging. And this is a concept that I live in in the workplace and work with organizations and teams all day long around, you know, belonging, psychological, uh, psychological safety, um, you know, toxic work culture and inclusive culture. And I always start by telling a story when I talk about belonging, right? Because yes, of course it's liberating until it's not. Mm -hmm. And, and by that, hmm? And where is it not? That's, I'm really curious and impatient okay. to get to know that. <laughs> right. So as we know, you know, now the research shows pretty solidly that our brains are wired for belonging. In fact, um, you know, I, I typically say that our brains are wired for two things. If a neuroscientist heard me say that, they would probably get very upset because that's not true. But, but really, at the end of the day, it's, it's for belonging and it's for forming relationships. And everything else is then at service of those two main concepts. And so when we look at, for example, the system in which we are born, which, of course, is our family, right? And our families establish the rules and regulations and guidelines of how to belong. And sometimes they're not optimal, <laughs> right? And sometimes they are in direct conflict with our soul purpose, our personal values, what we want to do, what excites us. You know, my father uh, was, uh, had actually um, been given a, a scholarship for four years in Germany to study film. And he was super excited about that. And his Indian father said, absolutely not. You must be an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer. And so when I came along and I wanted to be a cardiologist, my father said, absolutely not. You will be a filmmaker, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, what? So the story that I start when I talk about the dark side of belonging is this. In a family of thieves, the one that doesn't steal feels guilty. Wow. It's not that he's made to feel guilty. He feels guilty naturally by yeah. default. And this is a neurobiologically wired experience in order to make us stay in the family to be safe, right? So this guilt that arises is, oh, don't go outside the clan because you might get eaten, you might die, you might, right? You might actually lose protection and then you'll be all on your own. You may not survive. This is loading up from, right? Ancestral patterns, yes. Absolutely. But now it's 2020 <laughs> and we, most likely won't get eaten if we go outside of our home, but we are still wired to be in conflict with the values of the family and our personal values. And that conflict is what gets people incredibly stuck and staying loyal to the family ways of being, right? So it's a really, it's a really interesting opportunity to look at and invite oneself to, to really reflect on how can I still stay loyal to my family while pursuing my own values? I think we actually, in a, in a past conversation, you and I actually had this discussion where you said, well, what do I do when, <laughs> when I go home and my family's all about eating, 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 <laughs> and I don't want to eat that much, but it's coming from a place of love. And when I don't eat that much, is everything okay? Yes, What's wrong, Vikash? <laughs> it's the same thing, right? I mean, that's, uh, but do you think it has a lot to do with, okay, now we think that if I have to come out of that pattern, the only way is I have to move out of this environment. And is that the only way or can we still be in that environment and break that pattern? Okay, one, one example. Um, 
to start to have a startup in india and make it successful it you need another skill set to have a startup in a country like united states and make it successful you need another kind of skill set i mean what i'm saying is the environment is different and i've seen so many people who are born to poor families they go to united states and they become really successful and they completely broke the pattern of poverty from their ancestors and they went on to become really great successful people who contributed a lot and the other way around too i seen so many people from wealthy families they go to united states and they come back like they lost their life so is the environment playing an important role in breaking that pattern or can we change also by staying in the same environment <laughs> i'm laughing because you're asking all the hard questions <laughs> <laughs> and we need about 17 more hours <laughs> so the answer is no and yes if there is toxicity in the environment mm -hmm. as you know better than anyone vignesh the cortisol levels the the body becomes incredibly stressed eventually the body can no longer endure endure the levels of stress and then the body starts to break down based on those stress levels right mm -hmm. and they show up in different ways as you know because this is what you do for for a living um there's disease um there's ailments there is just debilitation right in the body so in in terms of the the actual toxicity of the environment if one is being abused if one is being humiliated if one is experiencing incredible ways of 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 being dismissed for who they are mm -hmm. this is going to cause a lot of problems in the body just alone right so it depends in the case that you're saying this is a systemic environmental shift mm -hmm. right so the family leaves india comes to the us and has an incredible incredibly successful life and that's fantastic i think i think for me i'm going to get a little philosophical if you don't mind maybe a little spiritual <laughs> i think this is really dependent upon honoring the ancestors for what they went through and choosing to decide something different mm -hmm. right and making that very very conscious and to the degree in which one can make those choices without shame and guilt and that takes a skill set then the ways in which that success or those patternings can be broken successfully is for me key i mean i've seen this over and over and over again and i've been doing this type of epigenetic coaching for you know almost 10 years now so you know this is every founder has a core belief to their family that's impeding them in the success of their business in some way mm -hmm. and so we just shift that core belief that is a transgenerational loyalty and once that shift happens in the mindset time and time again i have seen founders and senior business leaders just take off mm -hmm. so is there some uh, real life example that you found in your coaching that you would like to share like some changes that you saw that they were holding on from their ancestors and after some sessions you know and what was it that you know we can do also okay the first thing is you know awareness is the first step for healing and sometimes you will observe okay why am i getting scared in this place or why am i getting happy in this place or why am i attracted to traveling to this part of the world you know this is there are certain things that keeps coming up without any reason so if you share some examples it will be quite interesting yeah so so i have uh, so many so so firstly there was a ceo who actually received 40 million in funding and within 2 years had spent all of it and now couldn't actually build the company to any level that was profitable and now was trying desperately to send to sell what uh he had built and was not successful in selling anything um when i came in i was at the very very tail end of this so there wasn't a lot that i could do it was literally months before uh the company disbanded 
And uh, what we found was that this CEO's mother had actually shot herself in front of him when he was eight. So this was not resolved for himself. And this became obviously a huge sudden loss in his life that he continued to replay, right? The sudden loss of the financial wealth in two years, it's a lot for 40 million. Um, separately, another story, um, uh, this, this one was a, a, a C, uh, pro C, uh, chief product officer. And uh, this product officer was actually labeled on the team, on the executive team as a bully. Uh, in fact, someone on his team actually quoted and said, this is someone I fear the most in the company. This is terrifying to be in a, in a meeting every single day, <laughs> multiple meetings with him, right? Uh, so I sat with him. He was quite, quite, quite resistant in doing this work. Um, and what we found was uh, that another descriptive word, sorry, is actually very important. They, everyone on the team called him unrelenting. So when we were discussing an idea or a, a solution, he was banging his fist on the table and he was, you know, just really, really, truly not relenting to the idea, to anyone else's idea. What we found was that his grandfather's father died when the grandfather was eight. Mm -hmm. And the eight-year-old grandfather had to go to work every day, 10 hours a day, to support his mother and his five siblings, so himself and his four siblings. This created a work ethic that was un relenting and isolating. I mean, I, I can go on and on and on and on. Another, another um, uh, issue showed uh, between a CEO and another uh, chief officer. I think this was the sales uh, chief officer, I don't recall actually. They were always butting heads. They were always disagreeing on everything. When I sat down with the entire team, what I quickly found was the CEO was a survivor of the Holocaust. So her family was survivor of the Holocaust. And uh, the, the other chief officer was a descendant of uh, a Nazi uh, history uh, background. And they both didn't know about this. They didn't know about that. It was until I pointed it out. And they dismissed it. Let's be also very clear mm -hmm. that when I pointed it out, it was dismissed. And then I did work individually with each of them and there was a beautiful reconnection, actually. Yeah. So th this is constantly happening, constantly. So once you know this, what is the method that we do to break the pattern? If, if you can just explain, like, is it like affirmations or being aware and you say that, okay, I am conscious about this, now I come out of it? Or what is the way or is it something like I decide to come out of this? Yeah. So this is such a great question. Um, of course, you can hire me. <laughs> I'm sure we would love to do that after listening to these stories because... <laughs> and we are also having a free uh, six-week boot camp mm -hmm. starting in October. So October 10th, you can find... You can just Google my name. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. <clears throat> you can just Google my name with Eventbrite and for look for Biology of Belonging. So you can mm -hmm. come and work on that mm -hmm. at no cost. But the, the, the key is quite simple. Um, speaking from a neurobiological lens, while standing on the foundation of epigenetics, when these transgenerational patterns are passed down, they are coded through a neurochemical. Mm. And that neurochemical stays in your entire cellular biology with that pattern. So there is a, if you can, if you could call it this, a neurochemical rupture. I'm kind of, I'm fusing science and psychology here, <laughs> okay? No, but it's highly interrelated for sure. Uh, of course. So this rupture, this psychic rupture, this human psyche rupture um, is coded now neurochemically. And most likely it has some version of cortisol or some stress hormone or, or neurotransmitter. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so what we need to do now is replace this stress neurotransmitter with a neurotransmitter that feels more resonant. For example, 
oxytocin, endogenous opioids, serotonin, um, uh, endocannabinoids, benzodiazepine, right? So one of these. And as I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, our brains are wired to belong and to form relationships, but how they change, how we rewire the brain is ridiculously simple, Mm. ridiculously simple. The neuroplasticity is based on the relationships that we keep. So it's really important for you to really look at who is in your environment and who is causing toxicity versus who is causing care and joy and love. And the second is language. Mm -hmm. So the entire boot camp, the entire coaching that I do is very specific sentence structures that secrete neurochemicals. Mm-hmm. And so when we start to look at the research, especially the work from Sarah Payton, who's the author of the book, Your Resonant Self, her research shows that when we feel seen or heard, whether it's in meetings or from our parents or our friends, we secrete serotonin. When we have a sense of trust or vulnerability or connection with people, we secrete oxytocin. When we feel love and warmth and support from others, when we're working really hard and we feel accompanied in some way, whether it's in the workplace or whether it's our spouse at home, we secrete endogenous opioids, or as she says, endogenous opioids. I'm Canadian. (laughs) Um, When we feel that we're being able to be playful uh, in our life, or we're able to actually work through trauma with a therapist or a friend or process. Now we're secreting endocannabinoids. So this is really important to understand that literally the words that we say secrete neurochemicals. And we have to understand that we are just walking pharmacies, right? Oh yes, we are a chemical factory. We're a chemical factory, absolutely. And we are so used to, and we have so normalized being in a pool of cortisol every single day that we don't know it can be different until we know. So I think it sounds more like the Pavlos dog theory. You know, we are so associated to releasing cortisol for many things and we need to disconnect that. Absolutely. And, you know, for me, I even noticed uh, in, during this COVID time, I even noticed an uptick in my addiction to my cell phone. Right? Mm-hmm. I live alone and I am noticing now that when I'm on a phone call talking to a friend, I need to play a video game to keep boosting that dopamine hit mm-hmm. to have that level of focus. And I, I was stunned. So now I'm really focused trying to not do that on my calls. <laughs> I mean, that's why we have things like dopamine detox days. <laughs> that's really... At the resort. Yes, exactly. I mean, here we <laughs> tell them not to have and we eliminate all kinds of decision. The first few days they have some challenge, but after that they feel so relaxed and calm and their focus is way better and their sense of needing that sugar also goes away. And it's the pattern that they picked up, you know, and to some great extent, that's what we do. We're changing that chemical imbalance and how we are associated so much of chemical association with the words. And when we say some word, oh, I can't believe you said that word. And the moment somebody says that word, some chemical release is being activated. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's the power of really really, really powerful coaching, Mm -hmm. whether it's with a friend or a professional coach, doesn't matter. But there is something that happens when the person is able to really resonate with the other person who's struggling and to really mirror and be present, done masterfully, that person who's struggling actually can have a parasympathetic reset. It's, it's amazing when that happens. So you're, you're talking about, you know, the, the two main functions of our nervous system, which is belonging and forming relationships. 
Now, now with the, the, the okay, there's one thing that is happening in uh, United States, which is the Black Lives Matters, and you see that they don't feel belong there, and they were brought in from Africa, and now they are told that you don't belong here, or they were made to feel that you don't belong. And I remember in one of our conversations, you were saying that when a black child is born, their cortisol level is way higher than a white child is born. And so is it like it will take another few generations to come out of this? Or can we break that in this generation with our awareness and education and coaching? Yes, it's again, another fantastic question. I don't have an answer to that. You know, I, I to your point, um, the environment is in this country is incredibly toxic right mm -hmm. now. Right? You mean right now? Hmm? You mean right now? Mm -hmm. The 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 United States is right now so um, divisive mm -hmm. that there what I'm witnessing is an in intolerance in simply listening and in this intolerance there is such it is coming from the root of this intolerance to really hold the black lives matter movement with respect and understanding this inability to do that is coming from a very severe lack of empathy mm -hmm. and it's you know there I, this is a whole nother conversation there's so much research now that shows, to your point, um, this is Resma Menachem's work, babies, black babies are born with higher levels of cortisol. Black babies are three times likelier to die uh, in a hospital uh, when under the care of a white physician. Um, you know, the, we can go on and on about this. When we look at when we look at trauma, the trauma of the oppressed is shows in the moment just trying to survive the moment. We are seeing this every day in this country, and the trauma of the oppressor because everyone has trauma. We have to understand from an epigenetic standpoint, all eight and a half billion people on this planet are walking around with between two and five hundred years of trauma. This is very important to understand. So that means that those who are in the oppressor stance, who are denying that racism exists in this country, have absolutely come from a refusal and an acknowledgement and an unwillingness to hear and listen. The, the trauma for the oppressor shows up as Oh, unwillingness to receive feedback. This is a shutting down. This is a denying of. Right? I don't have to deal with this because I don't believe that it's true. This entirely encompasses a lack of empathy. It doesn't have to be true for you, but in order to create that resonance, in order to create that unity, in order to secrete the endogenous opioids, the oxytocin, the serotonin, we have to listen, mm -hmm. right? Just like in a workplace, if I give feedback, I may not agree with the feedback I'm getting, but I'm gonna to listen to it and I'm gonna self-reflect later and think about, well, I don't really agree with most of that, but I think I could be more X, Y, Z. Yeah, okay, I'll try and work on that. That's not what's happening here, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? So, so, and we've also, this is a, a bit of a paradox here. We're kind of maybe getting a little bit off topic. So let me know. I think we've also come to a place where we have now very, very copiously and very consciously begun to tolerate the intolerable. Mm -hmm. And when we tolerate that which is un intolerable, we are condoning trauma. And when trauma is condoned, 
it now redefines a culture. We call it tradition, we call it nationalism, we call it patriotism, but it is truly, simply an amalgamation of unresolved trauma. There's a saying, you know, we deserve what we tolerate. I think it's time we question what we tolerate. And it's so much easy to live with easiness. And some people I see, you know, they are so much addicted to drama or addicted to anxiety or addicted to last minute rushing yeah. or to stress. Uh, and you see, and they ask, I don't know why this has been me. And I don't think there's a way out. I have to live like this. And sometimes mm -hmm. people come and say, I'm diabetic, but it's, it's in genetics. My father also has diabetics. See, only type 1 diabetics is genetics. Type 2 is, they just inherited the same pattern of eating. It's not that <laughs> something to do with yes. genetics. Yes, yes. I mean, to your point about having a dopamine detox at the resort, hatred is uh, a huge dopamine mm -hmm. funnel. I mean, it, you know, the, the, the definition of hatred from a neurochemical standpoint is a combination of anger, shame, and fear, mm -hmm. right? And this is all cortisol-based. And so we've come to relate to people from that incredible cortisol rush when we step into this blame and hatred and dopamine. So you were saying about words have a powerful energy to break this pattern. So when we live in this world, when we all are craving for that belonging and forming relationship, actually, when you say belonging and forming relationship, I think both are quite similar because belonging is a form of having a relationship, if I'm right. <laughs> well, belonging, there's actually a, a very technical definition. There's a couple of technical definitions. One is, a, is the concept of neuroception, and neuroception is our, is our way of scanning for safety and danger in life-threatening situations at all times. That's Stephen Porges's work, actually. He wrote the book called Polyvagal Theory. But when we look at it from a more basic level, when we talk about it in, in group dynamics and team culture, belonging is an emotional need to be accepted by a member. Right. Okay. So, so it need not be like a real relationship or friendship, but I feel belong. I feel accepted in this tribe. Is that something? I, I feel safe in the moment with this, these people, with this person in this event or this situation. And that's key. The moment that you are in a group and you're scanning to look at that one person who you don't trust, then that is not a sense of belonging in the entire experience. Okay. This question that I'm trying to ask, I'm trying to get a sneak view into the kind of coaching that you do. <laughs> so when we talk about the sense of belonging, is there any particular keywords that is going to make us feel the sense of belonging? Or is there any particular kind of keywords that makes us feel, I don't belong here, I feel outcast or rejected? Yes, absolutely. And this is such a great question again. Um, everyone has two hemispheres. Mm -hmm. Each of these hemispheres speak a different language. And so everyone on the planet is at least at minimum bilingual. Mm -hmm. So the left hemisphere speaks in terms of problem solving, mm -hmm. in terms of advice giving, in terms of solution oriented ways of solving. It's, it's all about data. Mm -hmm. It's about not seeing what's, uh, it's about uh, seeing what's not there and solving for that problem. It's, it's really looking at, it's, it's, this is how when you look, when you're hanging a photo or a, or a picture and you're looking to see if it's perfectly aligned with the other thing in the, in the, on the wall, that's, that's it right there, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also, simultaneously once you've aligned it and you step back and you're seeing the beauty and how it's so beautifully decorated and it looks so wonderful that's the right the right hemisphere sees the interconnectedness of any everything it speaks feelings it speaks needs 
and it has access to the body. It is why somebody could be in a meeting for three hours, brainstorming, problem solving, trying to figure out this issue, which is a really big urgent thing right now. And the minute the, the meeting ends, they go, oh, I have to go to the bathroom, and they run to the bathroom. Well, they didn't notice that they had to go to the bathroom for the last 90 minutes? No, because they were in their left hemisphere solving a problem. This happens over and over and over again. So to your question, the ability to vacillate between left and right and back from right to left is the masterful way in which we show up as human beings. Mm -hmm. And this is the key to emotional intelligence. And this is the key to being able to rewire one's brain. Now, there's a little bit of a challenge with that mm -hmm. because unresolved trauma hangs out not only in the body but also in the right hemisphere so if one doesn't have the capabilities capacities resources and skill to self-regulate it's a very scary place to go to the right hemisphere mm -hmm. this is the guidance that i offer is to partner with individuals to help them re-knit and rewire their right hemisphere to resolve the trauma to the degree that we can neurochemically so they become much more skilled at vacillating between left and right and right and left. So you're saying if, if we enter that right hemisphere without resolving that trauma in a meaningful way, it, it's like opening a can of worms and it could end up with many other issues. Yeah. I would say it's exponentially worse than a can of worms. It's walking into a minefield or a war zone. Oh. It's terrifying. And it's why we avoid it. Mm. Kind of I, we always run away from, okay, the moment I feel I'm going to get hurt, I don't want to enter there. So I would rather sacrifice the pleasure I can go and get at the cost of, I don't want to get hurt. And let's also remember that the research shows that when I am rejected or hurt in some way, it actually lights up the pain centers in my brain. So being rejected by anyone, including ourselves, I must say, mm -hmm. actually feels like we're being kicked in the shin. Mm -hmm. And if we don't have the capacities to self-regulate and, and, and activate this particular circuit in our brains called the care circuit, which is able to do empathy, which is able to actually listen, have care, have curiosity. If we cannot activate that care circuit, then we live in the left and we are constantly running data. It's mm -hmm. so much safer. And we're blaming other people in order to have a relationship with them. And it feels good because we're secreting dopamine. Mm -hmm. It's a vicious cycle. Everyone that we see is holding on to a trauma of 200 to 500 years. So that's such a, I think once we understand that empathy comes naturally in all our communication. For sure. For sure. For sure. And, you know, it's uh, now it becomes an invitation, an opportunity to hold empathy for just not the people we believe deserve empathy, like those who look like us, especially in this country, mm -hmm. but to be able to hold empathy for everyone. I think the future generation one of the greatest challenges that we all can have is going to be empathy and tolerating the right things and questioning the wrong tolerance exactly tolerating my own discomfort in the moment mm -hmm. is the only thing that needs to be tolerated while holding boundaries with the other person and actually advocating self-advocacy hey that's not okay speaking to me like that is not okay please be more respectful in the way that you're engaging with me and and in fact actually we we discussed this as a team with one of the examples i gave of the one who was 
the bully and the unrelenting individual, I told the rest of the team, the minute that this person becomes unrelenting and steps into bullying, walk out the room. And this was an agreement that was made by the entire team. So he was told that when he, be, and I, I, you know, encouraged and enforced this. So he was told that the moment he stepped into that, anyone could just walk away. They had to say, I'm walking away now mm -hmm. because I'm feeling this experience. Uh, but, but, they, but they had the opportunity. And within, I would say, five times he changed. I mean, it is shocking that he is getting very angry and someone walks out of the room, right? He doesn't you have power, you know. Yeah, exactly. So, say again. You give that power away, you know. You don't yeah. let that overpower you anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not receiving the level of respect that I'm requiring in this conversation. Let's reconvene when it's more appropriate. Exactly. You know, and 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 uh, it got to the point where he started texting the CEO and others. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I got caught up in it again. And this this reconditioning, this repatterning, right, was quite helpful. I think that's where the whole idea is. Somewhere we are so fixed to that pattern, be it with our health, be it with our thinking, be it with our issues with relationships, or with binging, all this comes. And somewhere the first step is I am aware of it. I am willing to let go of it. I think that's where the whole idea comes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and let's remember, right? So let's go back to the neurochemicals, trust, community, vulnerability, transparency is oxytocin, love, warmth, accompaniment is endogenous opioids, and, you know, being seen and uh, being heard is serotonin. If we are not getting those needs met in our relationships, we are absolutely going to turn to addictions of food, gambling, shopping, drugs, because that gives us those same neurochemical hits. Gabor Mate is an amazing individual um, he's a Hungarian psychiatrist that uh, um, is in Canada, and he talks about how he was working, he's very famous for all of his work that he's done around addiction, especially a substance abuse. And he talks about how when he talks with meth addicts or heroin addicts, that they say that when they go in for that hit, it feels like the warmth of the hug of a mother they never got. Wow. It's like a substitute for a mother, <laughs> unconditional love that they got. And it's actually chemicals that are released when they get, it's also the same chemicals. Our body produces these chemicals organically without these drugs. You know? So it's just feelings that they're trying to get from that. Absolutely. You know, it's so funny. I went to uh, this, this company called Zappos. It's a shoe store. It's a very uh, famous uh, uh, company here in the States. And, uh, on on one of the walls it says what's the roi of hugging your mother <laughs> <laughs> and you know now with all of these neurochemicals i can actually calculate that <laughs> between roi versus uh, sorry between uh, cortisol versus oxytocin and endogenous opioids like we can calculate that now mm -hmm. when someone's brain is being shut down because they're being interrupted or humiliated or ridiculed or bullied or micromanaged that causes that huge cortisol boost and a complete shutdown of the brain and leads to burnout and depression and we can calculate the roi of hugging one's mother because it feels really good oh yes it's like we're connecting to that source yeah Unless, of course, your mother wasn't exactly the safest person on the planet. I also want to acknowledge that. <laughs> there are many mothers who are very unsafe. So, <laughs> But it's important to understand the value of that level of neurochemical connection. I think it all starts again with self-love and self-worth and understanding. And becoming independent of others' opinion, that's where we are going back to. 
Yes, and I think that's the work that I do. I love that you said that and that you that you brought us here because being able to re-knit, rewire that right hemisphere is all about that soft connection. Yes. And then the, 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 from there, when we have that level of self-connection, now we have an opportunity to self-advocate for mm -hmm. our needs that are unmet. And that is so important. That's, on one hand, it's phenomenally liberating. You know, we can come out of the patterns. But on the other hand, oh, so it is coming from there. So it's my past, it's my genes, it's my lineage, all of that. But the beauty is, you know, we all can come out of that. That's such a liberating time. And this is one of the best time. Only in this time, we can talk openly about it. In a few centuries ago, you could be killed. You know, if you say we are not the center of the planet, you could be killed or you could be stoned to death. Yes, yes. And that's it, we have this open discussion. And that's one of the best things about this time. Yes. And let's also honor and acknowledge that there are still parts of this world where that is unsafe. For sure, yes. Uh, I mean, uh, there's. I mean, we do read in mythology that there were times when everything was safe, but when you read history, things were much worse. So, when you look at that part, uh, for sure. I mean, a lot of places are still unsafe, and uh, things are not as good as we can expect. But there are places which reached so much of heights of perfectionism. I wouldn't say perfectionism, but way better than what humanity could achieve. Yeah. But on the other yeah. hand, it shows that disparity and the contrast is way higher than any other time. That's what makes it a bit more painful. Absolutely. Imagine a world where everyone prioritized right hemisphere, mm -hmm. empathic ways of relating. Our products would be different. Our organizations would be different. Our systems would be different. Our cultures would be different. We would live on a different planet. I think that's where first people like you are angels to come and make us believe that. <laughs> How can people get in touch with you, Rajkumari, if they want to have your coaching and sessions? Thank you so much for asking. Uh, please go to my website. It's rajkumariniyogi.com. And there's lots of information there. There's a podcast you can listen to, etc. Um, and you just Google my name, Rajkumar Niyogi, and many, many, many links will appear. Sure. I'll definitely add these uh, details into the show notes. And once again, thank you so much. It was really uh, insightful, entertaining, and liberating, I must say that. <laughs> Likewise. Thank you so much, Vignesh. Thank you.